This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. We've got an hour of science for you now here in the Triple R studio. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good to see you. Likewise. Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Shane, on this lovely sunny morning. It is sunny, actually. Cool, but sunny. Mm, cool, but beautiful. Sunny. Chris KP, Hello, how are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I asked you if you were okay in the yes. kitchen, and you said adequate. Yes, and I was adequate, and I suspect that I am still <laughs> at least equally adequate. One doesn't like to peak too early. Yeah, but now you're hanging out with us. Surely it's gone up I a bit. I feel infinitely better. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Infinitesimally better. Uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed. Hello, Liv. Good morning. And uh, we're going to start off with some news. We've got three guests today, so we're, uh, we're going to get straight into it because we've got some really interesting stuff to talk about. Dr. Ewan, what has been floating your boat this week? I'm going to talk about a really interesting study, which is essentially about uh, pharmaceuticals, pollution, and the impacts on biodiversity, uh, in this case platypus, but also invertebrates right in or around Melbourne. Yeah, I so saw, saw this one. Mm. It's a phenomenon we already know about uh, around the world where, unfortunately, you know, as we use uh, certain drugs, uh, that those find their way into the environment. Um, you know, so we, we, we and poo them all out and they end up in the streams, essentially, or in the oceans in many cases as well. And uh, then become part of the environment. And so this study um, actually looked at this this problem, I guess, around Melbourne, and they're interested in potentially the effect it might have on things like platypus. And so the way they did this was they sampled six creeks around Melbourne, and they uh, they sampled both uh, insects, so in the water, as well as spiders, so invertebrates. Um, and they looked at the levels of particular drugs, also just even the presence of drugs mm. uh, in these, and they found 69 different pharmaceuticals, wow. which is quite staggering already, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, really, really quite high levels, and even what you might consider quite pristine areas, like even a creek up in the Dandenongs, which you might sort of think of as being a bit more, you know, less polluted, shall we say, um, than creeks sort of further closer to the CBD of Melbourne, also had quite high levels of, you know, a whole range of different pharmaceuticals, and so... One of the interesting things about this was that they sort of calculated that if you looked at the, the sort of the, the levels, if you like, of these particular drugs in these invertebrates, that um, platypus might actually be consuming about half the human dose of antidepressants every day. Wow. How are they, so, they feeling? <laughs> one, one wonders. Yeah. And so, I'm guessing yeah. not good. And so certain, certain things are broken down. So things like caffeine and so forth, they break down relatively quickly, but they made the point that some things like some antidepressants, um, some fungal treatments, uh, and also um, the synthetic estrogen as well um, don't disappear very readily in the environment. So these things are basically just hanging around. And also they get magnified through the food chain. So there's this concept of biological mag- magnification whereby if in Insects are consuming these things, and mm. then if you're uh, something's higher in the food chain, you you're eating lots of these insects, and you get more and more of it as but it the, obviously moves. The mercury problem, yeah, mercury yeah. and sharks yeah. is a classic example, mm. right? So, if you're at the top of the food chain, like a platypus is in, in a freshwater stream, and they're eating lots of invertebrates and things like that, they're potentially consuming really large amounts of these mm. things. Now, they didn't actually measure what was in the platypuses, only in the vertebrates. So, the next study, of course, is to look at the blood levels and so forth in platypus, and also to work out what it might be doing. Now, platypus, of course, have different metabolism to us, so the question is, you know, do they process these mm. things like we do? Mm. But it does sort of raise a concern where, where about the impact. From? It comes from humans. So it yes. comes, comes, yes. comes, some, comes uh, basically through, um, you know, things like uh, sewage and so forth. So 
Uh, and also directly, if people are moving the environment and they're you know having a wee or whatever, and it finds its way in there. But often it's just through um, treatment of water. And they said in this study that some places, like I think it was Sweden, had really high treatment of their water so that these things don't find their way back into the environment, whereas we don't have that level of treatment of our water. So uh, it's it's a, it's a really big issue. I mean, I was amazed when they even made the point that they found um, it, uh, traces of pharmaceuticals and so forth in, in the surface water of Antarctica as well. Yeah, which yeah. is just <coughs> mind. Wow boggling right well, it's time, <laughs> time delayed but it gets there yeah well also yeah. though that was from two tur- tur- both the people who were obviously working there mm. but also tourists which increasingly are visiting antarctica and they just basically let this stuff out yeah. into the environment yeah. and just sits there right mm. and again moves its way through the food chain so there's a whole range of ways it can get there mm. but mm. um it's a, it's a really big issue not good not good no dr jen so i'm sure plenty of our listeners uh, keep track via, you know, whether it's a Fitbit or whatever it is, of how many calories, you know, a, a device tells you that you're burning at, at any time of the day. Um, and Chris and I are laughing. Well, you know, people like to know, you know, do I, do I burn more calories by running or do I burn more calories swimming or whatever? But the point is that actually our bodies need calories just to run. So, yeah. you know, for our brain to work, for our body to stay warm, for our heart to beat, all of that actually takes calories. And you kind of assume that if you're just lounging around doing nothing, that it takes the same na- amount of calories regardless of the time of day for your body just to kind of stay functioning it would seem like a logical assumption um, but a paper came out this week which showed that that's actually not the case at all so it's a very interesting experiment mm. they chucked people into a room for three weeks they had no windows no phones no internet no no, no way of knowing what time of day it was sounds like my workplace just a bunch of teenagers playing games <laughs> well like. not if it required internet uh, no showing your age Atari boy <laughs> <laughs> and so so these people were given a very controlled diet and they were given a set bedtime and a set wake time and their bedtime was delayed by four hours every day oh, so what wow. this means is they were effectively <coughs> crossing the globe every mm. week so you know their everything was completely messed up and so what this meant was that, that the researchers could look at what their bodies were doing aside from any external cues um, and it turned out that their bodies used 10% more calories when they were just lounging around doing absolutely nothing in the afternoon and in the early evening compared with the morning, which yeah. is a big difference. Yeah. 10% is quite massive. So you're just lying there doing nothing, but it takes a whole lot more calories to <laughs> lie around do nothing Feels that way. in the afternoon or the evening yeah. compared to in the morning. So what that means is that our metabolisms, like so many other things, are actually controlled by circadian rhythms. So the Italians have got it right. I was just going to say, does that mean yeah. we can all have a siesta now? Yeah. Because it sounds like it's going to be really useful. <laughs> we should. To burn we more should calories. Do it. it sounds yeah. like the greatest weight loss program ever. <laughs> yeah, just to sleep in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. I'm all for it. So, Absolutely. So this means two things. One, it means that it's probably part of the reason why people who do shift work and yep. sleep and eat at crazy times end up putting on weight. So yep. it's not that they're eating bad food or more food. It just means they're mm. eating not at a good time. And it means that for anyone who possibly can, if you're trying to control your health, you need to have a regular schedule. You need to actually go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time, eat at the same time, which, you know, we've been told for years, but this is probably a slightly more reasonable explanation mm. of why that's the case because everything going on in your body is is driven by this 24-hour clock. I would yeah. be really interested to see a translation of that study for people on long-haul flights. Because mm. mm. you're totally out of wax sleep. Oh, yeah. Well, that's crap, what they were forcing you know. these people to do, basically. They were forcing them to be yeah. on long-haul flights for three weeks, which... You're you know, oxygen-deprived, yeah. eating crap food. You start yeah. enjoying bad movies. Yeah, <laughs> smelling everyone else's... Anyway. Oh, yeah, uh, we can share the air, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Because you outgas. People don't realize that, but when you lower the external pressure, you outgas a little bit, and that's not good. It's oh, not sorry, I misunderstood the term. <clears throat> anyway, Let's uh, not talk about outgassing, please, boys. Chris KP, what do you got for us? Um, I, I've got um, a recently discovered new exciting phrase that I'm happy to announce on air, and the phrase is stealth moth. Woohoo! Yeah. Mm. That'd be a great name for a band. It, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking, yes, yeah, stealth moth. Um, or maybe an album. Sounds they, like a tongue twister to me, stealth moth. Uh, it depends on how big night you've had. The fact that I'm saying this morning <laughs> suggests that it's not that hard. Say it seven times in a row without a break. Worst radio ever. <laughs> <laughs> but I may, I, I may get tried that. I don't know, I'd be laughing. So, anyway, the story is that um, uh, moths are preyed upon by a variety of other animals, but there's a, there's a couple of scientists in uh, from the University of Bristol who are looking at moths that are preyed on by bats. And of course, bats hunt using echolocation. So they fly around making very high-pitched noises which bounce off stuff, and they're extremely good at it because they have to be, because otherwise they'll die. So they've yeah. evolved to be very good at doing that. <clears throat> but, of course, if you're being preyed upon by, by bats, it, it pays to evolve to not get eaten by them, too. That makes some sense. Now, some moth species, this is interesting, have actually developed a form of hearing so they can hear the squealing of the bats, which is like the screaming of the lambs, but much, much more worse for you. <laughs> um, and so, basically, they, they can avoid them. But there are plenty of moths that are just deaf still. And so they don't hear this coming. So they need to have a general ability to just not get in by bats. And what they found is they do it with fur. Hmm. Or whatever the right term is. Because Dr. Ewan tells me it's not really fur. But anyway, they, they've got fluff. I think moth fluff is good. In fact, that means you've now got moth fluff stealth. Um, so <laughs> they, what they did is they basically they, they ran some acoustic tests on the outside of the moths and they found that it really dampens and spreads the sound so it doesn't bounce back in a reliable even mm. way. Oh, that's so mm. cool. <laughs> so essentially that means that they are audio blind to the, uh, or stealthed to the, uh, to the bats as much as possible. They even actually removed some of the fluff and flew them around and found that they could track the sound much more accurately. So it wasn't just that it was generally quiet. It was, no, no, it was actually that fluff that that's was doing nice. it. So they've evolved <laughs> stealth fluff to avoid being eaten by bats. That's very cool. Well, um, next week is probably going to be one of the most exciting meetings in the world. It's the uh, General Conference on Weights and Measures. And oh, my God, I am very into this. I mean, I'm, going, to go. I'm going uh, to a conference next week, but it's not <coughs> that one. Yeah, anyway, it's one that, you know, I've always thought about going and then found a fork and managed to poke myself in the eye. But um, <laughs> this, it's, it's interesting because what, what happens uh, this year is something very, very important, and that is the... The international standard units for a range of things are being adapted and or, or modified. And this is something that, you know, years ago people used to have, um, you know, there was a, a, a piece of lumber <laughs> of a certain length. <laughs> it might have been metal, but <laughs> that was the meter. You know, there's still a beautiful sphere. That's yes, the kilogram. It's in Sydney. But all of these things are being um, revamped now so that they're, they're based on certain constants. So rather than have them based on an object, which is the way these things have been done recently, or until recently, um, the proposal next week at this conference, and if this is accepted and it's expected that it will be, will come into play next May, is that all of these standard things, so we, we have basically, there's about seven of them. There's the second, there's the meter, the kilogram, the ampere, so measurement mm -hmm. of current, mm -hmm. um, the Kelvin, so temperature, the mole, which is uh, a measurement well, really of how many. Yeah, because different to kilogram. Depends, yes, on, yes. depends on how much each little one yes. weighs. So 
there's that that mob, and you know chemists will love that, mm-hmm. and the candela, which uh, nice. you know you can brightness. probably guess is brightness. Mm-hmm. And so there's these seven sort of basic things around which all others are based, but they're all they're all sort of related to something. So you know there was probably a time where you know a four inch candle was the measure of, so, um, but now it's based on you know a certain frequency of light and so forth. So and what they've tried to do is make these so that they're not reliant on objects. But they're relate, reliable, uh, reliant on physical things in the universe. So, for example, if you have light of a certain color, then that will, you know, give you one thing. If you, um, if you have a cesium atom decaying at a certain rate, that will give you a certain time constant. Mm. These things are, these things are, doesn't matter where you look at them. Um, they're, they're constants in the universe and they're reliant on those. So the upgrade will happen, um, well, it'll be agreed upon most likely next week. So all these old, you know, standardized objects, this beautiful sphere yes. that's one, exactly one kilogram, yes. um, will be no more. Um, but the interesting thing is, is none of the values change. So the new constants they're all based on, of course, relate back to these the objects. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like you suddenly have to get all your 30 centimeter rules and shave them. Um, <laughs> they're all still good to go. Um, but they'll be, they'll now be related back to physical constants, which you can find in textbooks and so forth. And you can measure those anywhere. Uh, presumably in the universe, well, the part of it that we understand. Mm. So, yeah, so that's a, a, a big shift. So where, where, where is that? The, the conference itself? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah it's somewhere go. in Europe. Oh, okay. um, I know, I do want to go, yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, you know, Google it, Google Google conference on uh, weights and measures. I mean, uh, there's got to be a T-shirt that, you know. Lives onto it. Liv will tell us in a minute. Liv will tell us in a minute. I wonder what the hashtag um, is. I want to follow this. It's Well, it, it should it should happen. So, anyway. It's going to go viral, for yeah. sure. Take measurement right. But yeah. it, it, the, the funny thing is, is the, the only part that I think is lost here is just the, the beautiful precision with which some of these objects were made. So the, the original um, kilogram, the platinum iridium mm sphere like is you know you can you can see yourself in it it's so perfect I, and I shiny it's beautiful i heard somewhere that if that was the size of the earth the highest mountain is about 10 meters high yeah it's yeah it's, it's, it's so smooth it's sort of atomically wow. smooth it's, it's incredible so anyway uh it'll be i'm sure it'll be in a museum somewhere uh but it will no longer be used and they only bring it out about once every 40 years so and then they get something else make sure it's the same mass yep. and then use those secondary items for um for everything else so anyway Long gone. All based on constants now, which is the way it should be. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. We're going to take a break, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our first guest for today. 3 Triple Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jen Pishaneri. She is a data scientist from the Generation Victoria program at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute down at the RCH campus. Welcome, Jen. Good morning. Happy to be here. It's great to have you in the studio. Now, um, I want to start off by just a bit of a chat about Gen V or Gen Victoria because this is a brand new program and a bucket load of money finally has gone into it after a a, a lot of efforts by a lot of people. We all have jobs now. You all have jobs. It's very exciting. I should say that Gen V is scooping up people from all over the state and and elsewhere um, to make this work. But give give us a bit of a rundown of what what Gen V is. Um, Gen V is a very exciting child health project. We're going to try to get the data for all the children born in the state of Victoria between 2021 and 2022. Mm -hmm. Now, you can imagine this is a huge amount of data. My background is in astronomy, actually. So thinking about children and research, there's a whole lot of ethics concerns there. But one of the exciting things about this 
amount of data is the predictive power you get when you have a sample size that big. Mm. I studied galaxies. Yep. and well, they're, know, they're big. They're big. They're really far away. Don't have to get IRB or board approval for yeah. research on galaxies. <laughs> no one cares if you mistreat a galaxy. <laughs> no one cares. Have you ever done that? Um, I mean, I've accidentally deleted some files. <laughs> so that, that was more mistreating my own research yeah. than the galaxy. But you can imagine, like, you look yeah. at one galaxy and you see, like, oh, it's a red mm. galaxy. It's sort of spirally shaped. But then you look at another galaxy and you're like, uh, it's spirally shaped, but it's blue. And then a third galaxy, oh, it's spirally shaped and blue again. And you start to realize that the first observation was completely biased. Hmm. Now, imagine that instead of galaxies, you're studying children. And your first observation is really biased. And once you start getting this, and of course children are much more important and complicated than galaxies. And imagine like you start building up this sample size of children. You can, you can really get a handle on complicated questions, not just, you know, height and weight, but things like what causes diabetes? What causes Mm. autism? You know, these, childhood epidemics that we're observing now so so one of the things i'm I'm curious about is the sort of data that you collect because there's there's obviously been a lot of data collect on kids for a long time i mean hospitals do this all the time there's nothing unusual about that it's not integrated that's certainly true it's sitting all over the place and in fact if you were to look for your own data you'd probably never be able to get (laughs) to it so so what sort of data are we talking about here so i'd actually like to go back to the integrated part Mm -hmm. because that's really what i'm working on now is it's not just getting data from these kids it's connecting these kids and this that data to the rich victorian data sets that we do have you can imagine one aspect of gen v is building kind of this data platform you're a researcher working in geelong and maybe you're not talking to a researcher working in melbourne but once we have this data platform connected to these different data sets, I'm saying data a lot, hmm. but you're really leveraging the power of all the state of Victoria. Like, we are interested in autism, but we're building a data set for researchers across the world to answer whatever questions they have. It's not just the data that we're going to collect from the Gen V children. Mm. It's the data that exists out there and connecting to already existing data sets. That's yeah. really going to be the predictive power. So, so one of the things I, I, you know, I work in the sort of medical part of the university yeah. uh, generally as well, and one of the things I often get irritated by is the misuse of the term big data. And as, a, as an <laughs> astrophysicist, you must see this a lot, where, yeah. you know, stuff, frankly, stuff that can fit on your laptop. No, yeah. that's not big data. That's <laughs> da- just data. And, yeah. and a lot of the, the sort of health reforms and things that we can, we can do, presumably, are on just relatively small amounts of data. Yeah. Where does Gen V sit in that scheme? Is it, is it more of the small data or are we talking genomics sort of stuff? It's, or both? It's both, really. Like, it's integrating these small data sets that individual research groups have. You know, we don't want to lose that knowledge. Mm. If that knowledge only sits on one laptop, what good is it doing? But if we can integrate it into a bigger data set, that's, I mean, that really can help children. Think about all the files that are, like, floating around on your laptop and like oh i completely forgot about this thing i did Mm. like imagine if you had a way to really organize everything well so it's connecting these small data sets but we also do want to get genomic data and genomic data is legitimately big data 
Um, I've worked in the past on some bioinformatics projects, and I can tell you, you can't just open up a genomics file on your laptop. Yep. <laughs> like that doesn't. It, uh, my, it doesn't my MacBook yeah. Air kind of <laughs> took off from that. Now, in, in astrophysics, you would have found, and you know, this is where I started. So yeah. there, there's a very different approach to data. I mean, for one, we weren't scared of it. That was there was a, you know we were like it was like air, you know, yeah. just you just used it. But but more importantly, especially with international astrophysics projects. The sharing of data is just the the common scenario. It's 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 the currency that we yeah. all used. Whereas in what you're talking about with Gen V, the sharing here is a very different game. A lot of researchers yeah. don't like to share. I mean, how how are you approaching that problem? Um, that's a really good question, and I would actually argue I've talked to some astrophysicists who kind of like to hold on to their data as well. There's always the problem. People have this kind of I think personally imaginary problem that they're going to get scooped mm. in science like yeah. I'm working on this nature article and you know I don't want anyone to know about it for me my concern is less about you know people holding on to their data but being respectful of the people giving us their data I think that's really what we need to focus on is these are people that are giving us insights into their lives and we have to be really respectful of that Hmm. So along those lines, I'm just thinking if you're a parent, uh, knowing you're going to be having a baby, you're yeah. planning to have a baby in this window, what will that look like? What sort of data will be collected and how will that happen? And, and I guess then, you know, how long does it take before you can start making some some deductions about, well, what is going on with diabetes or autism right. or whatever? This is, so I have just recently made the transition into thinking about data from people. And one of the thing that's one of the things that's blown my mind is getting consent for a child that has recently been born. And what that means is we have to come in to, you know, a maternity room soon after you've given birth um, and ask for your consent and ask you or the nurse to help fill out a basic survey. And it's hard to get consent for some a person that doesn't exist yet mm. and um, just thinking on a personal level my theoretical children that I don't have I've theoretically just given birth and someone comes in and asks for consent for their data for my theoretical baby a lot of it is communication a lot of it is making someone understand that there's a slight risk but this information can really not only help your child but future generations of children we're looking at the next generation of children might actually be less healthy than us. Like, think well, about almost, that. Almost guaranteed, you would expect, yeah. given the contamination of the environment. Yeah, yeah. Chris, um, I'm just wondering how. You, so you get you get all the information. You know, I know that's oversimplifying it, but you get all the information, <laughs> yeah. and then these these tiny humans all end up growing up and doing stuff, right. and and doing things to themselves, which are influenced, you know, in both directions by that that genetic data. How do you how do you keep tracking them? We'll keep tracking uh, what they do. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, the The short answer is we will keep tracking them. The details are to be determined. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, That's this cool. is also the environmental factors yeah. that go into like why does Melbourne have such a high rate of food allergies? Mm. Like it has one mm. of the highest rates of food allergies in the world. And you wouldn't think that. You mm. think, like, we have a very healthy lifestyle. Melbourne's obviously a great place to live. Why are there so many food allergies? And is that a genetic predisposition? Meh, probably not. It's probably an environmental thing. And so we're not only going to get data 
from the children the day they were born, we're hopefully going to track them over the course of a lifetime. And children are always producing data, and that data is being Mm. stored by the state of Victoria in different data sets that don't necessarily speak to each other. What we want to do is get those data sets to speak to each other so that when you have that school data, when you have the record of, Mm. oh, my kid broke broke their arm, we can incorporate that into a research data set. We can incorporate those factors into predicting whether or not that child will grow up into an adult that has eczema or grow up into an adult that has diabetes. Mm. It's it's interesting. The project sounds more like a project for population health type stuff as opposed to individual health because interestingly you're you're doing it for a window you're not doing it continuously which um you know i mean i would hope that if if the the initial phase goes well you get enough money to actually do it for every year that would be the the goal there employed yeah well well, i'm sure i'm sure you'll be able to examine it you know it's like it's like the old astronomy stuff you know kepler sends the data down and for the next 15 years after kepler's died people are still examining it so you'll be good to go but um but this is this is one of those things where it's it's hard to convince people of the population health benefits that's that's the tough part i think of it's not about you it's about all the people around you it's like not smoking on the bus right and that that seems like a it's a bit of an uphill battle at the moment especially around the my health record and all the various things going on i think so a lot of it is just talking to a person one-to-one mm. and hearing people's concerns and knowing that those concerns are valid, but then reminding them that it's not just about you. It's about all of these children and the next generation and making them healthier. Like, it's an investment in the future. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you have to respectfully disagree a lot of times, and it's hard to do that when someone... Is it's a mother or father, and they're specifically talking about mm. their child. But it really is imperative to help the next generation. And I can talk to a politician and talk money and why you know we need yeah. to invest because the GDP is going to be like swamped by health costs. But if you talk to a mom, you're like, how about your grandchildren? Like your child's child? Like, do you want them to have a better life? Mm. It's, it's, it's a important. Respect, yeah, it's yeah. important to have a respectful discourse. Yeah, well, Jen, there's some great people, and I mean, we've had uh, Mar- Margie Danton on the show before. You know, does the same thing around vaccinations and yeah. does that respectfully and very effectively. So, good luck with this work. Thank um, you. It's great to see that Gen V has been finally funded because I know it was a long, <laughs> it was a long run and hard fought by a lot of people to get that money in there. Yeah, we have a great team. Great team down there, and hiring more, I suspect, with all you know, all the work that has to be done. So, um, good luck, and we hope to to see some outcomes of this probably in the decade, but uh, they'll be well worthwhile. All right. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Dr. Jen Fishinary is a data scientist from the Gen Victoria program, or Gen V as it's been known, at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back in a moment with our next guest for today. Three. Triple. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. This is a science show. It's Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now is Dr. Andrew Eng. He is a senior research engineer from the Faculty of Science, Engineering and Technology at Swinburne University. Andrew, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's great to have you in. Now, you are one of the winners of the uh, 2000, or the winner of the 2018 Fresh Science Competition this year, I understand. And a lot of that's around your work on, um, you work on corrosion resistant coatings. Yes. Now, first of all, why do we need these? 
Well, you need this because um, you use different surfaces for different, um, you know, applications and all that. Um, everything that we deal with is actually a surface. You mm-hmm. touch something is a surface. So um, I, I deal with uh, in this particular project with uh, something that we use on in the sea. Mm. Yeah. So, so boats come in with all sorts of stuff yeah. attached. I mean, I mean, this is the problem not just from the point of view of corrosion, but also contamination of our local waterways, isn't it? Yes, correct. And I was at a conference last year whereby they were talking about, you know, species contaminating our um, biodiversity here and mm. some of them being very invasive. So um, being able to stop what we call biofouling or uh, put it simply um, barnacles or um, stuff that grows on ships and we have uh, international waters and people um, move around ships, you know, from, from one region to another. So uh, biofouling um, in, in, in Australia is actually quite important because of our, you know, our, our um, nice barrier reef up uh, mm, north yeah. and, and also, you know, around uh, Western Australia. Yeah. Mm. And are there any effort, I mean, what are the current efforts to remove this material before these ships come into port? Is, is there any effort to do that or is it just bad luck? No, no, there, there is quite a bit of effort um, in terms of the um, international standards. So some of the um, ships that are docked um, before they enter Australia, they would have been cleaned. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in, in, in places like uh, the major ports like Singapore, um, some in China, they would actually clean it up before, or Indonesia, they would clean it up before it's allowed to come into um Australia, but still, um, you've got um, critical uh, vessels like the defence ships and all mm-hmm. that, uh, which we were, we are working on that um, have um, um, also quite long docking cycles, and they may may have issues of biofouling. Yeah. So presumably, what you're working on is the the idea of making specific coatings so that these things don't basically attach. Is that is that the goal? How do you do that? So what what our team has um, recently demonstrated is we have got a corrosion uh, resistant coating uh, because corrosion is still an issue, but it also uh, halves the biofouling rate. So something that, um, for example, will foul up in 12 months will now uh, take up to two years to foul up. So that's um, what we have actually uh, come up with. Um, and it is designed for critical components like, you know, things like um, the hydraulic ship propeller, um, you know, the, the, the balancing gears mm-hmm. in the uh, ship. And these are, um, you know, you do not want them to foul up and you do you want them to operate at all times. Yeah. Andrew, um, is, it, is, is your technology a chemical thing or a physical thing or both? So, so both. So basically what we do is we... Um, uh, it is sort of like a carbide coating. So just imagine going to Bunnings, um, standing in front of a drill section. One of the, one of those yep. coatings. But um, as you know, if you use any drill, it will rust. But we yeah. do not make it rust. So uh, it's a bit of uh, what we call alchemy, chemistry yeah, yeah. alchemy, yeah, sure. material alchemy. So um, what we do is uh, we use sort of like a flamethrower. Um, we inject <laughs> a material into the flamethrower um, and... We basically coat whatever um, substrate or whatever material is there, and um, it then forms a, a, a thick coating, um, which we then can um, surface down to whatever finish that they want, whether it's a you know mirror finish or if it's a rough finish, mm. and then it can be used. Mm. 
So how stable are these substances? So you talked about obviously not wanting corrosion to occur and you're obviously trying to stop fouling at the same time. Yeah. But the, the chemicals that you're using in these, you know, to create these structures, how stable are they? Are they not through time sort of leaching out into the environment as well? Or, you know, what do we know about that? Very, very good question. And we have done quite an extensive trial. So this, this trial has gone on for about three to four years already. Um, we, we trialed probably about 100 kinds of different um, samples around Australia, so up in Cairns, down in South Australia, and, and here uh, in Melbourne. Um, so we have uh, collected like samples of water to check for leaching rates and all that of um, whatever um, chemicals that we have put in, and we have found that it's very negligible. Um, in, in, in most cases, it is, um, as good as the background that we are measuring. So we are quite confident that it does not pose any, um, like, you know, some of your chemical paint system leaching copper, um, having copper reach water around it. No, there is no such, um, cases in, in, in our study. Andrew, when I hear about things like flamethrowers and so forth, I, I hear cost and a lot of cost. And I think for, for this to be viable, uh, you, you're going to need a lot of these companies that, you know, frankly, all they care about is money to be using this as a lower cost option to just scrubbing down their ships locally and putting crap everywhere in local environments. Yeah. I mean, how does that look at the moment? Does it look like something that can be done as as a, a cost reduction mechanism for many of these international companies, so that they're going to they're going to go for this because because it means it's cheaper for them, but the the benefit environmentally is going to be very large. Um, again, it's a very good question, and we we work with a local company here. Um, so um, at Swinburne, one of our research sort of um, objective is we do not want to invent something that just you know, just generates a journal paper. Yeah. But we want something that has a commercial outcome that we yep. can work with a local manufacturer here to then commercialize it. Then it becomes a commercial question, how can they lower the cost um, of the whole process? So we are, it is an ongoing process, but um, we know that um, critical components, like, like I mentioned, that's why we target them. Mm. They are of high value and they are of critical importance when you're out in the sea for yep. three months, four months. You don't want to turn the ship back to the nearest port yep. and then spend mm. the next six months trying mm. to repair the, mm. the, the, the prop shaft that's that's broken down because of, of corrosion or biofilling. So, mm. um, and, and the other aspect is having solid data. That's why uh, we embarked on a very long trial period. So some of the some of the, the samples that we put into sea have actually lasted for a year, two years, and then that gives them some um, hard statistics that that they say okay, and some visuals also mm. they can hold mm. and feel and say this has been in the sea for and eighteen months. Yeah. Um, look, it has it still performs as well. So working with um, uh, uh, local companies to build prototypes also is another aspect of the the, the project, and that helps in giving mm. them confidence. Mm. Uh, my, my, my final question really is one around optimization, because when you're producing these codings, you're producing them to deal with, you know, probably a hundred different problems. I mean, you've got things like pennant diatoms, which are, you know, my personal favorite. Um, and then you've got corrosion, you've got rust, you've got all these different things. How do you optimize the coding to find some sweet spot um, between these? Because presumably something that <laughs> stops rust isn't necessarily going to stop biofat. I mean, wh- where did you find the sweet spot there? How did you do that? Uh, there, there was quite a long, um, so, so there was quite a bit of trial and error at the start to try to get um, this uh, correct formulation mm. down, um, and we worked with with, with um, marine biologists um, at the 
DSG Group. We worked with um, with the coding's engineers from from overseas and all that, and and we managed to find a few formulations from the literature um, that we could start our baseline from, and then from there we started, you know, experimenting and and finally getting something that is um, sort of ideal. Um, obviously, the research doesn't end there. I've got a PhD student that's working now on the next generation, mm. so so that it can last longer and it can, uh, you know, we can achieve better than fifty percent. So yes, there is still a lot of you know experimentation, and that's why again, like you know, the the typical thing. That's why I'm in a job. Yeah, <laughs> now look, it sounds great, and look, it's it's an important problem. I, I think a lot of people don't realize when they see ships, especially coming into the bay, and that just how much crap they dump out and how, how many problems that yeah. that causes for local environments and and the invasion of species that we don't want and so forth. So, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Good luck with the work there at Swinburne. Hopefully um, we'll be uh, coating all our ships with stuff that will stop this transmission in, in good time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Andrew Eng is a senior research engineer in the Faculty of Science, Engineering and Technology at Swinburne University. We're going to take a break for uh, some music, folks, and we'll be back with our final guest today. We're going to be talking about uh, immune stuff. I love that stuff. Yeah, it's good. Three. Ah. Ah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein at Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Emily Edwards. She's a research fellow in the B-Cell Differentiation Laboratory in the Department of Immunology and Pathology at Monash University. Emily, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, now, we... Uh, We've sort of, I think we connected up on Twitter somehow, or I can't remember how I found you, but um, <laughs> it's, it's probably because you work in um, everything about the immune system, mm. and, and we've sort of had this month, actually, where we've had a lot of guests talking about yeah, the immune system. Yeah, she had some friends system. of mine in in the last few weeks, Yeah, Yeah, and there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of discussion about that, which is great. But you work in particular on immunodeficiencies or primary immunodeficiencies. What, what exactly does that mean, primary immunodeficiencies? So, basically, primary immunodeficiencies are a large group of disorders. So after, over the past 30 years, um, there have been identified th- more than 350 immune disorders in this group, and they are caused by mutations in particular genes that control the immune system. So these diseases actually vary in severity, and mm-hmm. that's very dependent upon which component of the immune system is affected. Um, and we actually have a large group of those. Um, most of these patients actually don't have a know which gene is affected in them, which is is problematic in in, in a lot of cases. Um, And this is particularly the case in a large group of these disorders called predominantly antibody deficiencies, which I work on in the laboratory. So these particular uh, group of disorders, one of the cells affected is called a B cell. Mm -hmm. So normally what happens in a healthy individual is the B cell um, produces these protective proteins called antibodies, which help protect against invasion from, say, bacteria and viruses. Um, However, in these patients, there's something um, that's wrong with the B cell, so it can't produce these protective antibodies. And so these patients have something called antibody deficiency. So basically they either got very, very low levels, or in some cases they have no... Um, antibodies at all Mm. and what happens then is the infections that they have are both more severe and more persistent so this means that these particular patients then have to have lifelong antibody replacement therapy and also what we call prophylactic um antibiotic therapy so prophylactic is basically preventative yeah so that that i mean presumably 
that's very troubling, though, because I, I know there's been a lot of work in the last decade or so on just mm-hmm. how much damage to the microbiome and so forth yeah. antibiotics uh, do to us. Mm. And, you know, we should avoid them wherever possible. There's yes. also, you know, a big push to not use, overuse antibiotics. But, but in patients that have to constantly be taking them, I mean, what does that do to their, to their system? Well, that's one thing we don't actually fully know at the moment. So in terms of the microbiome, we're not completely um, mm, across because it's, it's, it's a new field. So firstly, we're not across um, what is the impact upon primary immune deficiencies that are untreated on the microbiome. And then also we don't know what the impact then is the lo- of the lifelong therapies on this. So that's something that's um, very interesting. I'm sure the outcomes of that are going are to come out with the this sort of spin-off from all this uh, microbiome research. Um, the other problem is it's not just the, the lifelong therapy. It's, it's the availability, firstly, of plasma products, which is a massive thing. Um, I believe it's at least plasma from from uh, 10 people is required to make one infusion for a primary wow. deficient patient. Yeah, so I think it's at least from 10 people, which is why there's such a push to try and get people to donate plasma. Um, and also... The other thing is it's not just the infections that are an issue in these patients. It's also they have lots, um, so up to 68% of Victorian primary, uh, predominantly antibody deficient patients actually have what we call non-infectious complications. Mm. So these are things such as autoimmunity and cancer, and these are very difficult to treat. So, so it's interesting to say that because one of the things that I find fascinating, and, and I've been talking about this a lot more on there lately, is the mm. idea that we get cancer all the time. And our immune system takes care of it. Yeah. And then you get, you get to a point where for whatever reason, your immune system fails and you end up with a tumor or something, you know, but, but we're we're getting little cancers. We're getting errors in that all the time in our bodies. I mean, what, what does that look like in, in these patients? I mean, presumably they can't take, take care of those little bits of cancer or they're poor at it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's these sort of different components that usually do the surveillance of your system and then they'll detect these cancers. I mean, our immune system is, it's very intricately balanced, mm. let's say. So what happens in the um, system as it develops is that you want to have cells that recognize foreign invaders. Yep. You don't want um, cells that recognize yourself. And tumors are self-cells. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is the same where it comes in with autoimmunity as well. You don't want these cells that recognize your own, your own body cells. Um, so what happens then is that the immune cells don't recognize the cancer, so they can't keep them in, in bay. So actually primary immune deficiency patients do have a higher rate of mm. cancers. Mm, indeed. So, so on that point, possibly, mm-hmm. does that mean that um, that people suffering this kind of immunodeficiency have it show up at different times? I mean, is, I mean, am I possibly carrying some massive problem that I just don't know about and one day it's going to totally hit the fan? So it all depends upon what um, gene is causing your primary immune deficiency as to whether you have what we call an early onset, so that's usually sort of childhood onset of disease, or whether you get the symptoms show up when you're an adult. And we're learning more and more about what different genes are controlling sort of those different onsets of symptoms. It can also depend on, um, cause different severities. So the 
individuals that have early onset primary immune deficiency tend to have more severe disease than those who have an adult onset, which is quite interesting. You, you mentioned the, the sheer number of genes that have been identified mm. and involved in this. I mean, this it feels a bit like you know autism spectrum disorder or a number of other similar scenarios where there's, there's obviously a lot going on. How do you go about formulating therapies if if you can't identify you know which genes are involved, and especially given some of those genes will be doing other things in the body, so you yeah. don't want to just switch them off. They'll, you know, I mean, what's the what's the approach? So what we actually do in the lab is we get blood from patients and then we also take it from um, healthy individuals and we look at how the different immune cells um, react Mm -hmm. I suppose is the best way so we we look at different things so um, much like you and I have say different hair color and different eye color the different immune cells will have a different different characteristics so that we can then identify those cells and then we can look at them more deeply and then so you may take so if we were looking at the general population, we might take blonde-haired people, and then within that group, you'd have people with different eye colour, different skin mm. colour, um, different tones of their voice, for example. So we might take out and be able to identify the B cells from other cells according to one characteristic, and then drill down a bit further according to all these little diff- intricate differences so that we can see how that population of B cells in a patient will different differ from a healthy individual and what we can also look at is how they function differently because ultimately it's their inability to function properly that Mm. is causing the disease in the patient so we do it that way and look at different immune cells and then try and see what the different characteristics are so that we can then try and find ways to formulate new therapies that Mm. way And, and hopefully i mean presumably with things like crispr Yes. E- easy gene editing tools mm. becoming you know more proficient um, as time goes on if we can work out what genes are causing the problem we can correct them in time well yeah and th- there's two sides to that CRISPR technology thing we can identify a gene <coughs> yep. and then we can use CRISPR to kind of inactivate it and then look at the, the sort of um, consequences, of, consequences that. Yeah. of that and then also I know it's coming along through for like they're starting to do some research into CRISPR for uh, gene therapy because the only curative therapy for a primary immunodeficiency at this moment in time is a stem cell transplant, which is well, is very yeah. sort of severe mm. treatment to have to undergo. Mm. And this works more efficiently when you're young, and then once you get past the point, I think it's around about adolescence and onwards, it's a lot more intense mm. to be able to actually get a, a, a good outcome yeah look it's it's a it's a problem that uh, is is obviously you know it's one of those things that not as many people are affected by it but those affected by it are affected so severely mm-hmm. and, and a lot of these you know rarer diseases are like that we find so look Emily it's great to see people working on this here in Melbourne and um, hopefully uh, some of these um, genes can be identified more effectively and we can find some treatments thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us no problem thanks for having me Emily Edwards is a research fellow in the B-cell differentiation lab at uh, Monash University we're uh, pretty much out of time Dr. Ewan, good to see you again. It's you, been great. You off into the wilderness today? Or? Uh, hang out with the fam, have oh, some yeah. nice lunch up on Sydney Road and then enjoy the sunshine in the afternoon, I think. Sounds good. Dr. Jen? I'm oh. doing what he's doing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's a strange coincidence. Chris KP? I hadn't planned to, but it sounds great. <laughs> come, come along, You're Chris. welcome, Chris. Oh, wow, <laughs> you're desperate. <laughs> uh, I think that sounds a bit dodgy. Uh, Liv's been doing a <laughs> Twitter feed... Folks, if you want to follow along on Twitter, we um, 
we do try and put some interesting stuff up there from time to time, especially, well, it's mainly during the hour when <laughs> Liv's actually doing it. Uh, the rest of the time it's me and that's uh, less interesting. Uh, I'm Dr. Shade. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will chat to you again next week. We've only got a few shows left for the year, but we're pretty excited about it because we've got some great guests coming in. Thanks for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.